Excellent. All right, we're 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 gonna start right now. Sound quality good and all that. Yeah, stuff? Sound, sound quality looks great. Your video looks great. You're a okay. you're a, you're a seasoned professional. Um, I'm wearing my infrared jacket. This has, this has the emblem on it from uh, Next Generation Space Telescope. So it's 2002 <laughs> or before. <laughs> Man, it's funny. I I did a um I did a history piece on on JWST and sort of went all the way back to the beginning when it was originally the Next Generation Space Telescope and you know, people were shocked, shocked to hear that it might go to like a billion dollars in, in budget and launch sometime in the yeah. early, you yeah. know, in the early 2000s. And and how little did yeah. everybody did everybody realize what would happen? Yeah. 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 It, it, quite uh, the history. But we'll get into that. We'll get into that. All right. So the question I always ask people is, is who are you and what do you do? OK, I'm John Mather. I'm a senior project scientist for the James Webb Space Telescope. And I work at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center just outside Washington, D.C., where I have been since 1976. Wow. And like we could do a show just going through in great detail your background. Um, but like, can we give us some highlights? Because you've literally had your hands in every single major space mission. Uh, every major, major astronomy mission that people are, are familiar with. So just give us just a few of the missions that, you, that you've been involved in. Yeah, well, um, stepping back to before I was at NASA, um, I was at UC Berkeley to uh, get a thesis uh, on physics. I wanted to be like Richard Feynman and understand quantum mechanics and gravity. So people still want to do that, but I gave up on that. <laughs> and I found a thesis project to uh, measure the Big Bang. Uh, people had just discovered the cosmic microwave background radiation in 1965, and uh, that was about 1970 that I was looking for a thesis. So um, my friends and I built a payload to, to send up on a, um, on a high-altitude balloon to measure the cosmic background radiation spectrum to see if it really is the black body curve that's predicted by every theory of the early universe that even resembles a Big Bang story. So, and what did you find? It, went up and it did not work. It did not work. <laughs> so I had to write a thesis about a failed thesis, a failed idea, and, and I got a job at NASA uh, to become a radio astronomer. People thought I was going to be okay at that. It turned out to also be really hard. And after I'd been there for about six months in New York City um, at the Goddard Institute for Space Studies, uh, NASA issued a call for proposals announcement of opportunity, uh, anybody got an idea? And this is only five years after the moon landing. So I said, boss, my thesis project failed. We should try it in outer space. <laughs> right, not a balloon, but in outer space. He said, right, we should. He knew how important it really could be if it could be made to work. So we called up our friends, uh, we wrote a thin proposal and we sent it in. I thought well, that'll never happen. Um, but NASA knew that it was possibly important. And so two years later, I moved here to Washington, D.C. area to the Goddard Space Flight Center and uh, started working to make that project happen. So it was uh, conceived in 1974 and it was launched in 1989 and it worked. And this was COVID, right? Yes, this is COVID, the Cosmic Background Explorer Satellite. It did work. It measured the cosmic spectrum and eventually um, down to 50 parts per million, which is about as accurate as you could have imagined in those days. 
these days I could say uh, my colleagues are working on a way to improve that another factor of a thousand. Right. At which point you get to see even more weird and wonderful things of the early universe. And uh, and other, that and map, the, the like, that, you know, that map that we're yeah. all really familiar with, that incredible view of the cosmic yeah. microwave mm -hmm. background, that first picture came from from this satellite, that full all sky survey of the cosmic microwave background. Yes, it really did. It was the first one that could see the whole sky. Uh, we uh, were barely able to see the cosmic bumps and but there were, they were, uh, and um, we felt very fortunate because we had no idea how hard we would have to try. The instrument was just barely good enough to do this, but it was so important that uh, two other satellite missions have been flown since then, the Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Probe and then the European Planck mission, and they both said, uh, you got the right answer the first time, but we have more detail for you. Yeah. And. Uh, so um, it is now extraordinary what can be learned from this. We have measurements of the parameters of the expanding universe down to a percent level, uh, which is a completely unexpected to me when we uh, instrumenters started dreaming about what we needed to do to measure something that had never been seen. And now uh, the, the incredible statistical power of all sky maps has really come out. Um, basically, nobody expected this when we started. Yeah. So, so give people some context. Like when you look at one of these, these pictures and I, you know, I'm having to use everyone's imagination right now, but I'm sure you've all seen it. It looks like this sort of egg on its side of different colors, blues and greens and yellows and reds that makes up this background radiation of the universe. What, what are we seeing? Oh, my goodness. We are seeing the universe as it was when it was about 400,000 years old. Uh, we look out in all directions and we see radiation that came from those times. Uh, and why is it that? Well, it's because that's the time of the expanding universe when it became transparent. The early universe was a hot plasma and light waves uh, could only go a tiny distance before they hit an electron. Uh, after it became a neutral gas, uh, then the light waves were free to travel all in a more or less straight line all the way from there to here. So we're seeing it as it was at that time. And um, now we can interpret the little hot and cold spots too. Uh, we don't know what originally caused them, uh, but we know that um, most of them are there because of cosmic dark matter, uh, which is something uh, astronomers can measure but can't see. Mm -hmm. um, and that's important because those spots are also responsible for our existence. No spots, no people. So, uh, and no dark matter, no people. So um, that's because uh, gravity is the force that reaches across immense cosmic distances and can stop the expansion of the material uh, in the dense parts. So the, the parts that are a little denser than average in that early expanding map, um, could stop expanding. So um, that the map shows you how dense those little spots are and uh, how, uh, com and compares those small, large diameter ones with the small diameter ones. And so it tells us the initial conditions of the growth of everything that you see around you. And, and before so, you, you launched the mission, were you expecting to see these these differences in temperature or were you expecting it to be all the same temperature? Nobody honestly knew. 
Um, when we first started, um, nobody had a decent prediction at all. By the time we launched, uh, which was 15 years later, uh, then um, people had worked pretty hard and they some people got the right answer. Um, you should be able to get the right answer if you say, I know how the galaxies grow. They had to come from some seeds. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and you imagine back in time to see how this works. And so some people got it about right. But a lot of people were still surprised. And that was great for us. Because it uh, being a surprise means it's an important discovery. We we always joke about this on on Astronomy Cast that that the cosmic like almost every big answer seems to keep coming from the cosmic microwave background. Like it just it just gives and it gives and it gives. Um, like, do you think there will be some limit to like will it always be useful to study the cosmic microwave background, or will we get to some point where we sort of learned? everything we can from it? Good question. Well, um, we haven't quite gotten there yet. There is one thing that's still left to learn that we know about, which is the polarization pattern. Right. Uh, so if you had sunglasses on and you rotated them in front of the sky, you'd see the sky would get lighter and darker because of the way that light scatters from molecules in the sky. Um, we actually do the same thing with the early universe. Uh, we have put our sunglasses on and we rotate and we measure the polarization vectors of those hot and cold spots in the maps. And the uh, remarkable thing is that there is a kind of pattern uh, that could only come from gravity waves in the early universe. Before all that radiation uh, became free to travel, uh, there was something going on. And, and so we'd like to know what it was. So this is a way of uh, seeing what was happening even before the radiation was free to move. And so it's extremely important. It tells you uh, something about physical properties of the material of the Big Bang, or I should say the early universe. Right. So, so um, you know, uh, how, how, would it, how does this tell you? We know if, uh, if a sound waves in a gas, there's only one kind of way that that works, uh, compression waves. And the compression waves, uh, you know, sort of going towards you and away from you, uh, pressure waves. In a solid, you also have sideways waves. Uh, if you knock a, a board uh, with your hand, then the side wave waves go propagating down through the board also. So there's three additional, three polarizations of sound waves in a solid. There's only one in a gas. So we're kind of asking the kind of question of the early universe. Well, what kind of stuff is it made of? And so this is incredibly important for the big challenges of quantum mechanics and gravity. Yeah. So, I mean, the cosmic microwave background is, is so, oh, go ahead. I was going to say that it's just so fascinating, but it's also this wall that is 400,000 years after the Big Bang and a lot of the really interesting things that happened in the universe happened before that point. And so this is one way to be able to peer further back in time than, than you can just by looking at the cosmic microwave background. Am I, am I understanding that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, there are things that cause patterns in those spots. Um, and if you can understand that, then you've measured something that you didn't know before. Right. 
Um, all right. So, and of course, like for people who don't know, you were awarded the Nobel Prize for in physics for this discovery back in 2006. So, congratulations. Um, so, you also worked with with Hubble, which you know everyone's quite familiar with. But I would I would like to just sort of jump ahead to James Webb because I feel like the story of the early universe you know, as we go from the cosmic microwave background to the early structure of the universe, this is the story that James Webb is going to be going to be telling. So like, what came next after that light could finally be released out into the universe? My goodness. Well, after the Kobe results came out, uh, I was thinking, well, that was exciting. How can NASA ever do anything to top that? Uh, and the Hubble telescope was already up and working a few months after the Kobe satellite went up. So um, I'm thinking, well, mm, what do I do now? So I started saying, well, when we know we're going to build a thing that ended up called the Spitzer Space Telescope, and it's only a little guy. The telescope is 85 centimeters across. And uh, my friend said, well, that's not good enough. There's an awful lot more to know about that. I said, well, how about we make a telescope that unfolds in outer space? Uh, how about one that's maybe two meters across, right. about, about twice as big as the Spitzer? Okay, my friends laughed at me and said, that, that's much too hard. We'll never do that. Um, so I was completely amazed when I got a phone call from NASA headquarters that said, you know, we are starting a study of this new telescope that's been requested by a committee uh, that was chaired by Alan Dressler. And they said they wanted a bigger telescope. How about four meters in size at least? <laughs> yes, and, please. Uh, to do infrared astronomy. And so um, I got this phone call and I dropped everything. I was working with Chuck Bennett to make a proposal for the Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Probe uh, cosmology mission. I said, well, this is, my, this is my thing to do. I want to do this new telescope. So I jumped in and that's what I've been doing ever since. <laughs> and and it, how did it go from four meters to six and a half meters? What 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 caused it to sort of turn into the, I guess the the monster that we know today? Oh well, goodness, there were several steps. One is that um, I'd been thinking about a, a deployable telescope that could be bigger than the rocket. Um, other people had been thinking about it too, and then uh, it turned out the head of NASA, uh, Dan Golden, had been thinking about it when he worked for classified company called uh, TRW at that time, because uh, they knew they needed bigger telescopes for uh, Defense Department. So, okay, so he knew that it was not impossible. He knew that it could be done, uh, and he understood that astronomers needed bigger, bigger, bigger telescopes. So, okay, so the way started to open up magically that uh, even though astronomers said they needed a four meter, it was pretty obvious that uh, to really answer the scientific questions, they needed a bigger one. Uh, you say, well, what scientific question drives such a big telescope? Uh, and the answer was uh, the cosmology. Uh, we knew um, a prize to be discovered was um, what's the first object that grew out of the Big Bang? What are they like? We had by that time the uh, beautiful Hubble Deep Field. Uh, we had fixed the Hubble telescope, it was working. We had a picture that said, uh, it's not like we said, 
early hmm. university. Uh, happened much more quickly. Galaxies grew quickly. By the time we can see them with the Hubble telescope, they're already fully formed and begin to look old. So um, we had hoped with the Hubble telescope that it would be capable of seeing the very first things growing. Answer was, nope, can't do that. Need a bigger telescope that does infrared light because uh, the things we're looking for are so far away, they seem to be expanding away from us so fast that the light that comes originally at visible wavelengths, ultraviolet even, is uh, redshifted out and, uh, and you can only pick it up with an infrared telescope. So the answer was, please build us an infrared telescope that's bigger than what we had before. And we said, okay, then uh, we better make it unfold because we, uh, we can't reach that scientific goal without a bigger one. Hmm. So, so you had, had thought up the idea or had been sort of throwing around the idea of building a folding telescope, but you hadn't settled on the wavelengths that it was going to be observing. And it was this no. It was just uh, it was just a casual sketches on a few few graphs, and my and my uh, my buddies laughed at me. They said that's too hard. We're not doing that. So I stopped. Yeah, and 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 then, but then as the astronomers came together and said, "Here's this epoch of the universe that we want to analyze," that's where the actual full size of of James Webb came from using that folding idea. Yeah, well, there's that. There's also uh, um, the visionary nature of NASA headquarters at the time was receptive to something bigger and more powerful uh, based on new technology. They could see quite well that uh, if you're never going to get a bigger rocket, you were never going to get a bigger telescope. And so the we don't build the rockets. So they're, they're as big as they're going to get almost. So. Um, you astronomers, you want a bigger telescope, you better make one that folds up. Right, right. So the headquarters can see that uh, this is an investment in our, our future. Um, so let's do it. And and we so we very. Um, and I mean, this was the end of the 90s when you started down this this journey. Um, and yeah. that's sort of like the beginning of my career was about the same time and wow. i've now been doing wow. it for 22 years and we've just seen the launch of of james webb um mm -hmm. what was mm -hmm. it like to go through the the ups and downs of of shepherding this telescope to space yeah well you know i never worried that it wasn't going to happen uh, i only knew that it was going to take whatever time it took uh, the reason for that is uh, we knew that the astronomy community really, really needed this. We knew there was never going to be another way to do this science because uh, nothing on the ground could possibly see through the atmosphere. Um, we knew a small telescope was never going to do the job. And so uh, this was a unique, untouchable thing. Nobody can do the science without this equipment. So, okay, it's just going to take whatever time it takes. And so I didn't worry about that. I just said, this is going to be exciting. It's absolutely worth all this effort. However long it takes, it's going to be worth it. And then um, enough other people believed that too, that, um, that although we had troubles with our budget and our plan, um, people saved the project over and over again uh, when we needed to say, well, I'm sorry, we didn't ask for enough money. This is just a too hard a project for that plan. Yeah. That happened several times. 
there was even a time when uh, a congressman uh, said, well, put zero for the budget in this. And so people came together and said, no, we need to get this. And Senator Mikulski, by the way, was always a powerful advocate for all science, but NASA in particular, <clears throat> well, she was pretty annoyed because she'd been let down by NASA. So she said, you better get this right. So please make a uh, committee that will tell us that we're doing the right science, that we're telling us that this is the unique thing or not. And please make sure the test program is right because that's really hard too. So we had two external committees that reviewed our work and said, yeah, actually it's true. There is no other way to do this. And um, they made some suggestions to limit the cost. Uh, there are some things you don't really have to do after all. Mm -hmm. So we did what they said. And so now, I mean, at the time that we're recording this, we're sort of in this, in these in-between times, the telescope has been, is, is at its final L2 Lagrange point. The mirrors are aligning nanometer by nanometer and we're seeing these first combined images of a star. So it looks like at this point we can all breathe easy. Like every part of it is working fine. The, the mirrors are working great and now it's just coming into focus. What, when those first images come, what will we see? Well, um, actually, I can't really know what we're going to see. The, uh, we will select some uh, really pretty beautiful things to demonstrate that the observatory is working. Uh, the list of those targets is secret, and I haven't even seen it, uh, because it will be a wonderful surprise for everyone. Um, but you know, uh, all those beautiful pictures with the Hubble, uh, they will be beautiful and different with the web. So obvious candidate objects will right. uh, places where there are an awful lot of stars together, like the other galaxies, like the Magellanic clouds, um, places where the stars are being born today, uh, like the Orion Nebula, like the Eagle Nebula. Um, and of course, we'll be looking at other stars and uh, even our own little planets way in the outer solar system. So I'm not sure what they're going to be choosing as the very first things to prove this equipment works. Um, but as soon as we get those few done and we start serious scientific observations, then we have a uh, whole year of scientific things that are already being planned. Well, well so let me revise my question then. I, the long -term plan. I mean, I'm I guess I was going to say just like, like not necessarily like, like which objects specifically we're going to see, but, but I guess, you know, you have been dreaming like you've been living in this in this place in the universe right out of the very edge of what is possible to see you're seeing the the this afterglow left over from the from the big bang itself what do you hope to see i mean the the james ah. webb will take this region of space that has been invisible to us to this point and lay it out finally in front of us so that we can take a look at it what are you okay well, what are you hoping to see i'm hoping to get some big surprises and so i'm kind of speculating about where they might be so number one obvious territory is the early universe um, we have this marvelous uh, model of the early universe called the standard model 
uh, and it matches the information quite well until, you know, just uh, in the last few years, we've started, started to get a discrepancy. We have two or more different ways to measure the Hubble constant, the rate of expansion, and they uh, ought to agree, but they don't. Uh, and the uh, disagreement is getting interesting. So either we're missing something, or the universe is complex, or we just uh, have fooled ourselves in some way. So any one of those answers would be interesting for us, but there's a big mystery. Um, it seems to me there's a possibility that uh, the early universe had another kind of object that existed only for a short time and they have all disappeared. So there are none of them left to find today. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if that turns up. Are you talking about um, like the population three stars, like the first stars? Or a, um, population three object of some sort. Uh, maybe, uh, I just don't know. <laughs> it just seems to me that's uh, an area of space-time that has not been observed and so um something could be hiding there yeah yeah it's i mean like these telescopes observatories they are they are question manufacturing machines not answering machines for every answer they give you they open up 10 more questions and it and it feels like the questions are the most fascinating part What's that? Why is that? How'd that get there? What, what's that doing? Yeah. Um, you know, I look at things the same way. And, and, um, our job is not to go and test a theory. Our go job is to go find something that we didn't expect. And so that's because fundamentally astronomy is like biology. It's an observational science. It's full of complexity. Um, things hardly ever go according to a simple theory. Um, we're lucky when we can find a simple story to explain a complicated situation. Uh, but nature just goes for complexity all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so we've talked a bit about the about the about the early universe, what are the limits? Uh, like, is there still a hidden part in the early universe that even James Webb won't be able to reach? Good question. Uh, we honestly can't tell what the early universe is hiding. So we designed uh, equipment that is able to see the objects that we know about out to certain distances in space and time. And so I can tell you what those are. Uh, we think um, we should be able to see the first objects at a redshift of about 30. That is to say when the universe was a compressed by about a factor of 31, uh, things that much closer together. So that's an enormous compression. That's a density compression of a more than a, what is it, 30,000. So uh, the universe was extremely different in those days. Uh, so something could have been odd, weird. So the big question astronomers have is um, what happened first? Did the galaxies grow in those uh, dark matter blobs that we we're talking about earlier? Or were there uh, black holes out there that were there all along? Uh, right now, we see that every big galaxy has a big black hole in the middle. Uh, but how did that happen? Did the galaxy make the black hole, or did the galaxy galaxy grow around the black hole? Um, that's one of the big stories uh, to test. Uh, we currently have an idea that galaxies grow by pulling a thousand little bits together. 
that the little ones form first and then gra gra gravity pulls them in. Um, so here's a possibility. Each one of those little ones has a black hole in it. <laughs> now the gravity pulls them all together. The black holes find each other. So how does that happen? Well, we'd sure like to know that. Yeah. Um, I mean, again, it's it's funny because it's sort of like all of this time, these decades of work is all leading up to this next year. Starting in just a couple of months, we're going to start getting just report after report, which is going to be filling in in all of these these pieces. And it's sort of it's, it's hard to even imagine what astronomy is going to look like post first light. Um, so we talked about the early universe. Let's talk about things that are that are a little closer to home, which is being able to observe the atmospheres of of other planets. Uh, what will James Webb be able to do from that perspective? Okay, well, uh, we have two ways. Um, if a planet is really bright and really far from its uh, from its star, then we see it as a little dot, and we spread out its light into a spectrum, and uh, we do uh, chemistry on that because each different molecule or atom absorbs light at the particular wavelengths. So then we can see what's there if it's that kind. The other kind we can see is when a planet goes in front of its star and blocks some starlight, um, then a little bit of the starlight goes through the atmosphere of the planet on its way to our telescope, and we can figure that out. How much of it went through that atmosphere and how much were the molecules in that atmosphere taking out of the starlight? So we can do both. Um, this one is... Uh, capable of, of observing tiny planets, Earth-sized planets uh, going around tiny stars called M stars. And we got a lot of them in the catalog that we know about. Now, we know when they're going to go in front of their star. Uh, and we know when we should observe. And we know how to set up the equipment. So we're going to try that and see what happens. So either those little guys are little rocks with no air, you know, or they're little rocks with air, or even a lot of air, or at some point, when they get big enough, you rather expect them to have a lot of gaseous material, and maybe there's no rock in the middle. So a lot of things to be found out. This will be the first time that we can observe atmospheres of small planets. Yeah, it's, I think about like the TRAPPIST-1 system, because we've got this place where there's like six planets orbiting around this red dwarf star some are too close some are too cold and some are right perfectly in the habitable zone and all pass in front of the star and we'll be able to kind of see the differences with james webb from from the different planets as they're as they're going around the star yeah that's a, a fascinating system there are so many planets so close together and it's pretty easy um, it was easy enough to discover that this system was discovered from the ground um, because and that's possible because the planets some of them are relatively big and the star is really small so um, that was possible and we still aren't able to do the atmospheric characterization from the ground um, but we'll give it a try with the web telescope yeah now you you know we've talked about the early universe we've talked about exoplanets where else do you see james webb revealing information about the universe? Where else do you see it being used? 
Well, obviously, uh, one of the big mysteries we've had all along is, well, how do planetary systems get formed? So you may not be able to see the planets in them, but you can observe uh, new stars growing and those beautiful clouds of glowing gas and dust like the Orion Nebula, like the Eagle Nebula. The, those beautiful pictures we make with Hubble show you the places where it's happening, but they also show you dust clouds. And uh, why is that important? Well, number one, the dust is responsible for the formation of the stars. It enables the area or a particular place to get colder and colder and colder so the gravity can pull the material together. But then it hides the results. Um, there's a star in there and you can't see it because it's hidden inside the dust cloud. So uh, this is where the infrared capability of the web comes to be so important. Um, infrared light can go around dust grains uh, as compared to just bouncing off like the short wavelength. Did I lose my internet? Oh, I'm still here. Okay, all right. Yeah, um, I, I'm on Starlink and uh, and it's you know it's a little uh, it's a little testy, but but it allows me to live in a in the in the forest in Canada and be able to still do my job. So oh, wow. every uh -huh. now and then. Um, all right. Well, so we we've talked quite a bit about James Webb, but but there's a lot of other projects that you have your have your hands in, and I'd love to talk about about the future because you you had to draw a line with the capabilities of James Webb. I'm sure you were imagining, like, what if we have it fold out even more? Uh, let's maybe, maybe make a 10 meter, meter 20 meter. Um, what, mm -hmm. where do we go next? What, what, what kind of telescope do you think is needed to answer the next set of questions? Because you got to start now. I mean, obviously, you can't wait for James Webb to generate all the questions. So what yeah. do you think should come next? Okay, well, in a, in a way, um, I don't have to figure that out myself because uh, the National Academy of Sciences just ran a committee and published a report. Uh, I like to call it a science party, which means we get hundreds right. of people together to talk to each other to uh, uh, come to an agreement about the answer to your question. So NASA studied four different uh, very large observatories for space uh, and uh, the committee said, well, we're not going to choose exactly an observatory, but we'll tell you what it needs to do. Um, so we need something that's uh, at least six meters in size. It's the uh, same size as, as the web, uh, but uh, accurate enough and covering the wavelengths that it takes to see Earth-like planets around other stars has little dots, little separate dots. So uh, that way you can see the reflected light from the surface of a planet uh, and learn a lot more about its chemistry. So that's uh, like the hardest problem in astronomy right now is to see those things. And of course, if you do this, it's like a super Hubble. It's uh, about the same size as Webb, so it's a whole lot bigger than Hubble. Um, and um, But there's the shorter wavelengths, the ultraviolet astronomy that the Webb can't do. Um, so that's the number one priority for that report. They also studied uh, and reported it on the a far infrared observatory uh, that would uh, extend the Webb telescope results to much longer wavelengths and much cooler objects. And they also studied an X-ray telescope, uh, which would be far superior to the ones that we have now and uh, tell you more about black holes and uh, neutron stars and things that collapse and, and explode and things like that at extreme temperatures. 
So uh, all three of those territories have been examined and uh, basically the committee said, we need them all. Uh, but the first one to try is this uh, optical and ultraviolet telescope that's like Hubble, only bigger and better. Right. And and I know like the this is the, the Louvoir um, telescope and the original plan was something in the nine to 15 meter territory, maybe bigger. Um, but in the end, the decadal survey, I guess, brought the size down a little bit back to the to the web size. Um, do you do you think that that part of that was just like lessons learned on taking on too much technical risk with with James Webb? Mm, well, I don't know about too much technical risk, but uh, takes a lot of cost to solve all the technical problems. So in the end, uh, it wasn't a technical risk for Webb, but it sure cost a lot of money to solve the problems. So um, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess like like I know that like when NASA works on a on a proposal, they've got all of these these things are we know how to do these things we don't know how to do yet. We're gonna have to figure them out as we build this this telescope. And you only want to include so many of the we don't know how to do into your project. Um, and that you know, I think with with web, there were a lot of them in there. I mean, they, they had to, you know, yeah. we can go on and on and on about all the new things that they had to figure out how to, how to yeah. do. Yeah. We had, we had 10 inventions to make for the telescope to work. So right. um, when we think about the uh, upcoming uh, future telescope, um, then um, I think it's pretty natural to say, well, that's about the maximum budget you all can possibly hope to get out of Congress, you better fit in there or you're never going to fly at all. So um, that's what the committee thought could be done. And and with a, I mean, you mentioned one thing, being able to see, I mean, like being able to see the dot that you know is the light coming from an Earth-sized planet orbiting around a sun-like star would be just absolutely stunning. Um, what else could we accomplish with a with a next generation telescope like that? Oh my goodness! Well, you can see an awful lot more detail of everything that's here. Uh, we can watch the solar system do its thing. Uh, we can see uh, galaxies uh, much farther away. Uh, the early universe is a prime target for a telescope like that. Even if it doesn't do the infrared, that can see the very first objects. It can see what we call um, well, there's, I forget what my buddies actually call this, but there's a sort of time where a peak activity uh, when the um, galaxies were just growing as fast as they could. And that's a, at a moderate, modest redshift of about three, still like almost impossible to do f with telescopes we have today. And it's uh, only learn a little bit about those galaxies, but if you could get the bigger telescope, you could sure learn a lot more. So this story of how did, early universe produce us is uh, it's got so many pieces and the telescope is for that now you're like you have your your sort of you're active in so many projects at the same time and and the whole reason why i actually brought you on today was you were part of a team that was awarded a NIAC grant the nasa innovative advanced concepts award um mm -hmm. for a to ex explore a new kind of telescope called the Hybrid Observatory for Earth-like exoplanets. 
So can you explain this project? Sure. Uh, well, um, let me start with a starshade. Uh, a starshade is uh, um, something you use to cast a shadow of a star onto a telescope so that you can see the little planets hovering near it. And why would you do this? Well, the uh, point of it is that uh, the sun is 10 billion times brighter than the Earth. So if you're standing off at a great distance, you're trying to see a firefly next to a searchlight. So you can't do it uh, without extraordinary optical quality or something. So this is one way. And so um, I worked on other versions of a starshade. I worked on a proposal to have one fly with a web telescope. Huh. Uh, that was too hard. We didn't do that. Um, but in the back of my mind, I kept thinking, well, one of these days, we're going to have a telescope on the ground that is totally immense. And there might be a way. So the answer is, yes, there is a way. You can fly a, a starshade in space and cast a shadow on the telescope on the ground for long enough to measure something. And the upshot is um, with the, the biggest telescope that's being built today is a European one. It's called the Extremely Large Telescope. And extreme means extreme. It's 39 meters across. That's what, six and a half times the size of the Webb telescope. Right. It means it's a whole lot bigger than this uh, space telescope we've been talking about. Uh, so if you can do anything at all from the ground with this totally gigantic, immense telescope, then you better try. So that's my idea. Uh, let's figure out how to do this. Now, why is it hard? The starshade has to be immense. It has to be about 100 meters across, which is about as big as two football fields side by side. And it can't be too heavy or you can't move it around. So this needs some very clever mechanical engineering. So, and, and I actually did interview someone a few months back, actually talking about a fairly, a fairly similar idea, but, but just sort of like using this, this star shade, you could, you know, cast a shadow, give, give, I guess, planet earth, little eclipses from these, these stars that fall right on the, the telescope, mm -hmm. block that light work with the coronagraph that's already built inside the telescope to be able to reveal the the planets how many shots at it do you think you would get if you had a starshade orbiting around the earth ah well um it's basically a matter of propulsion um each individual object you want to look at needs a different orbit and uh while you're observing you have to push on the uh, star shade to keep it exactly aligned. And so uh, two wonderful propulsion problems to solve. And so when you run out of fuel, you're done. Right. Um, so um, Our designs say, well, it depends on how much fuel you can manage to get up there, but probably 100 targets could be done, maybe more. And and so, and so sorry, what orbit are you? What orbit are you proposing to put the, the starshade into? Well, we're calling them astrostationary orbits. People think always geostationary, which means it hovers over your telescope all day long. We're looking for something that's different, that hovers between the telescope and the star for a while. And so it's not hard to find these orbits. Uh, they are pretty high altitude orbits, uh, about 170,000 kilometer long ellipse will do hmm. the job. And at that point, the, uh, the starshade is moving at about the same 
speed as the observatory is spinning around the Earth. So you match those up and you can do the job. And and you and so the propellant would be needed to then shift the starshade into a different orbit to set it up in a future orbit in front of a different object. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. We need uh, two kinds. We need a propellant to hold the, the starshade in the line for the duration of the observation. And then we need another kind to go from target to target. I see. I see. So you, you would be essentially, it would be following this elliptical orbit, it would reach the top of its orbit, and then it would try to hover there for a while, giving the telescope time to take its data. And then it would stop propulsing, fall back down around the Earth, and then shift itself into a new location for the next target. And so would you be... Yeah. Would you be essentially capturing, I mean, I'm thinking like 170,000 kilometers. So it's going around the earth once every, what, two weeks or so? Uh, every five days. Yeah, okay, okay, every five days. And so would you be observing a different target every every five days? No, actually, um, um, we'd probably do the same target two or three times before going on to the next one, because, you know, planets will move in right. a few days. And we'll be able to see that. Um, so um, hmm. it's actually, the, the propulsion that it takes to go from target to target is very slow. It's called solar electric propulsion. And um, so you can't move very fast. So you can't move very far. So um, it's going to take a while to do this. So combining the largest telescope ever built by humanity, the extremely large telescope, which is like 39 meters, it's coming in in 2026, with a 100 meter starshade. What does what can we get with that? Because I like I know that that the ELT should be able to resolve Earth sized worlds, even without a starshade. So this has just got to be taking it to the next level. Yeah, so um, the challenge is actually that the, uh, the brightness problem, uh, if the earth like planet were hovering out there all alone, it would be really easy to see it with ELT. Uh, it's got plenty of sensitivity. Uh, you could see them, uh, 10, 20 parsecs away in a short time. So now the job is just please block the starlight so you can see the planet. And so now our simulations say in uh, about one minute, you could get a nice picture of an entire solar system from uh, Mercury on out to Jupiter uh, with a target uh, at say a distance of five parsecs. Yeah. And there are a lot of stars in that category. And then um, if you want to get a spectrum to say, well, what's in the planetary atmosphere, you can take you about an hour to do that. So um, that's not too bad. You could see um, oxygen and water in the atmosphere of a little Earth in an hour. Huh. And so you would like on one orbit, take a snapshot of the solar system, see if there's anything interesting there. And then maybe on the following orbits, use more propulsion to have it loiter and let you do those longer exposures. Yeah, that's probably what I would do. Um, unless I could so get so clever that I can do it all at one shot. But that's right. hard. Right. And I still want to see if the planets are still there the next time. Right. Yeah. To see if, if they're in a different configuration. Um, yeah. And, and so, so by the way, Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Um, one, one th obvious thing people always ask is, well, 
doesn't the Earth's own atmosphere block you from seeing those uh, molecules in the other Earth out there? And you would think yes, but not quite, um, because the uh, the what we call atmospheric lines, the spectrum absorption lines of oxygen and water that we can look at at the visible wavelength ranges are so weak that they are not completely blocked. And so yes, we can definitely see oxygen and water um, despite the atmospheric inter uh, interference of our own Earth. And and I guess, I mean, there's other wavelengths, like, say, ultraviolet, that you still would need a, a space telescope to be able to view. But there's going to be a lot that will be visible to the extremely large telescope or the 30-meter telescope or, the you know, the Magellan, yeah, all of these telescopes. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I guess, like... What are the, I mean, it, you know, you've received this NIAC grant to be able to, to study this. What are the big unknowns in your mind right now? What do you think are going to be the biggest challenges oh. to make this work? Well, what I said in the proposal was I need to build something where the star shade has a mass of about a thousand kilos. Uh, and that's about one seventh of the mass that we extrapolated from a previous design that was done for smaller observatories as smaller telescopes uh, for Jet Propulsion Lab. You know, they studied uh, star shades a good long time, and they're really good at it, and they made beautiful movies of them unfolding in space, and so you do know how to do that. Uh, but then when you try to get it to be 100 meters across, then it's too hard. It's too heavy. It takes too much effort to push it around. It costs too much. So um, my objective in this study is to uh, think fresh and find a mechanical concept that is much lighter and is still capable of being sufficiently rigid and uh, able to be put up there. So I think we can do it, but we're asking for a big jump in uh, concept. Right. Well, we are like at this point in early 2022, we are potentially just a couple of months away from the first launch of Starship to go to orbit. And that, mm -hmm. if it works, and I'm, you know, big asterisk there, if it works, then you will see a dramatic change in the whole launch equation. You're seeing mm -hmm. well over 100 tons going into low Earth orbit. The launch costs on a reusable rocket coming down by orders of magnitude. Is there a part of your brain that, that sort of thinks about what could be possible? with a rocket like that? Oh, oh absolutely. Uh, not only can we put up bigger telescopes, we can put up bigger and better star shades and we can refuel them. You know, when access to space gets cheaper uh, enough, then you say, well, that's worthwhile sending another rocket up with more gas. Uh, so that um, when I told you earlier that uh, <clears throat> it takes a lot of fuel to push the star shade around, well, okay, just send more fuel. <laughs> That's a possibility. Yeah. Uh, also, it's pretty hard to fold up a 100-meter star shade in, to fit in any rocket. But if the rocket is bigger, it sure is a lot easier. Yeah. I mean, like, the, the, the fairing of star of Starship is, like, <laughs> 9 meters. Like, you could fit James Webb without having to unfold inside a Starship launch. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And a, a folding <laughs> version would be... 15 to you know 18 meters across if it just followed the same kind of functionality as 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 web and so yeah 
it's you know it's like again you know we're waiting for Webb's first light and we're waiting for Starship to prove that this is possible and if it does then everything everything changes yeah um, so you know I don't have any doubt that it's going to work eventually there's an enormous uh, economic force pushing it uh, I think Elon is right that a reusable Starship is a uh, is going to beat all the competition and so he needs to build it he's just going to keep at it till it works yeah and even if it isn't fully reusable i mean still that kind of a rocket could send your starshade up no yeah. problem um yeah. yeah so so i think it's pretty clear that if you could build a telescope that didn't need the starshade it would be easier to use but on the other hand um we already have this gigantic telescope coming 39 meters across, it's extremely powerful. And so um, the things that it can do, it can do best. How, and, and I guess, I mean, you know, we're talking about before you've actually gone through the whole study process, you've essentially submitted the proposal and said, here's what I would like to, to investigate. Do you have any sense of like how long it might take to construct and, and launch, do you think? Oh, I think quite a while. We're pretty far from having the uh, the concept that we would like. Um, right now, we're on the edge of impossible. And that's why it makes it into a NIAC proposal. If it were already something we knew how to do, it wouldn't be a NIAC proposal. Right. So um, if you win the NIAC, and you, uh, then you do a nine-month study. And then you propose for more. And then uh, that takes you maybe a year and a half or two to do the next round. And if that works, then you get some more time and more money. So you're not even ready to start to the next stage uh, for quite a few years. And that's presuming, presuming success, which yeah. I certainly anticipate, but you never know. Yeah, yeah. I Like, I love the Nike Awards. I mean, they've been, they've been running them now for, for quite a while. And a lot of the really exciting, interesting ideas that have ended up being more mainstream in in NASA's mind started at the as these these NIAC awards. It's sort of a great way to constantly be thinking about the future and trying out ideas. I think even the Starshade started out in that. Yes, as, it did. As a NIAC Webster award. Cache. Yeah, Webster Cash. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And. And, and then here we are, it's a very mainstream idea now. And there's a star shade attached to almost every space telescope as a, as a consideration anyway. Um, well, John, if, if people want to, uh, keep track of what you're working on, um, what is the best place? Where's the best place to go? Well, we haven't published very much about this one yet. Um, didn't expect, I didn't even expect to be chosen. Um, but I'm pleased to be chosen. Uh, so um, what I'm trying to do next is to create a way for public participation, though. Uh, people are very creative. And, you know, uh, college kids in mechanical engineering have to build their balsa wood bridges. And I'd say, well, please tell me how to make a, uh, a self-supporting starshade 100 meters across out of ultralight material. Right. So I think that would be a good challenge have you... uh, for every college engineering class. NASA actually does a bunch of these of these challenges. Uh, you know, they've they've got one right now about uh, what how to deal with poop on the moon, how to deal with power, mm -hmm. uh, how to reuse and recycle material on a moon mission on a Mars mission. So so this might make a great uh, NASA yes, challenge. Well, 
Funny you should mention that. I submitted my idea yesterday. For for one, of, one for one of those. For one of the NASA challenges, yes. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, that's that's great. I could just see like you uh like you just never run out of ideas. Well, I'm counting on um, the world around us to have lots of ideas. Yeah, yeah. I am pushing the bound of, I think it's not impossible. And now uh, please show me how it is possible. Yeah. Well, um, John, it, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I really appreciate it. Congratulations on James Webb launching. And as we stand now, mere months away from that incredible first light. And I look forward to this and all of the new missions that you're working on. Well, thank you. Uh, before we close, I just have to say this was not my project. This was 10,000 people working together to make this thing happen, this web telescope. And I am absolutely in awe of the talents of the engineers and the managers who managed to organize all 10,000 of us to do this thing together. Yeah. So those people are my heroes bill oaks is our project manager and i just love what he does fantastic well john thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today uh i can't wait to see your your response when those first pictures come out so i'll be i'll be watching well thank you thank you fraser uh, all right i'll be happy to talk more about all these things when they begin to grow when you finally have some new questions okay all right take care excellent thanks thanks bye, -bye. now Excellent. All right. Thank you so much.